now. Truth of Lies. Episode 8. Time to reflect. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever time it is. Welcome to Truth of Lies. My name is Tony Horn. I'm a ghostwriter and podcaster in Lancashire, England. In East Bolden, in the northeast of the country, is Julie Phillips. Well, kiddo, I reckon we've come to the final episode. <laughs> um, a chance to reflect and fill in some missing years and find out a little bit about Holly, if that's okay. But we're recording this in late October 2023. so. It is over two decades. Can you assess that period of time? Does it all still seem like yesterday, or have you been able to put some distance between now and then? And that's a clumsy phrase because, you know, the good times there with Michael, not something you probably want to run too far away from. Seems a long time ago, but then it doesn't. I think. Because obviously Holly's coming up 22. I don't know. It doesn't get easier. It, get, it just gets different. The other phrase that people often say is, you never get over it. You learn to live with it. Um, mm -hmm. And you can never put any measurement how, how many years might have passed before you can say those words and i think you get to a certain age in life where everybody's had a sliding doors moment you know where you've got two options ahead of you and you replay that moment in your mind for the decision that you didn't take this is a sliding doors moment in that it's pivotal in julie's life michael's life and holly's life but it's not a sliding doors moment because of the option of a second choice other than for the guys to have not driven the, that vehicle that night, but that wasn't on the, on the table. I think people that look at the sliding doors moments in their lives, and perhaps you can try and help people through grief analysis here, but if I were to ask myself how I feel about those those moments, I I can go all glazed in my look, you know, staring out the window, and I can almost like inflict a dream sequence upon myself where a sort of shudder of my shoulders will shake myself out of it. But does any of this ring true that you can some you can get lost in your thoughts? for a few seconds moments and and i suppose it's that that makes you feel like it was just yesterday and then when you snap out of it that's perhaps also when you think it was a long time ago yeah i mean it's got a lot easier a lot easier it's not i don't have to think about them i don't, i know that sounds a bit I, I don't i don't need to he's not on my mind all the time but it's always there. I mean, I just have to look at Holly. Do you know what I mean? And that's like the big reminder. 
but I've learned I've learned to deal with it, cope with it because I've had well, I had no choice. I times moved on. Life moves on. And I'm not really like I've said before, I don't I don't like to wallow in self pity and I'm not like I don't feel sorry for myself. I very rarely talk about it. If somebody asks, I, I will, but I don't normally talk about it. I'm things glad I just asked. Got, yeah, things have just got like a lot easier. It is what it is and me and Holly's still here, you know, we're okay. We're healthy. We're alive and well and I'm a great believer that there's always somebody worse off than me. Or always. Yeah, the the gift of being alive is massively underrated. I think I hope this relates to people that have had huge moments of grief in their life. Whether it be something public like our fallen soldiers or whether it be events like COVID that suddenly placed grief in the daily mainstream. But I think one of the effects that it's had on me, grief, is I've not always been able to let myself go. And that doesn't mean that if everyone else is enjoying themselves, you look around and you think, well, such and such a person should be there, so therefore I can't really enjoy myself. I don't know. I mean, I I built a radio career out of trying to make people laugh or trying to make people think. And I know that in recent years, I value good conversation much more than than laughter and i don't i don't laugh a lot anymore and you know this podcast is about you but i'm just trying to take my own grief into the context of this conversation and just try and see what symptoms there might be out of being traumatized and and living with grief i've really got an answer for that i know i'm not the same person i used to worry a lot You know, like when Michael was alive, I was a worrier, constant worrying about things, and now I don't give a shit. Is that one of those scenarios where, you know, people who say, well, what's the worst that can happen? And, of course, it already has. So in some ways, you've been set free because you've been right at the bottom. And if there's any benefits from any scenario like this, if it means that you live your life to the full, and live that life for two people when a lot of the time we do worry don't we we worry Mm -hmm. about nonsense increasingly today we've talked in previous episodes about social media but you know people have this fomo fear of missing out and it's all a nonsense they're not proper proper emotional values but if it if it means that you don't worry about the nonsense in life and you stride forward and take every moment then that's just about well one of the few positives that you can certainly take from this i think i think my i think when when my way of kind of grieving i don't think i grieved but was to get away i'd pack a suitcase and i'd go abroad and i did it a lot and i mean a lot i took holly all over the place and then i kind of learned that it's still there when you come back nothing changes Everything's the same. And 
but that was my way of escaping. Escape to somewhere new where nobody knew me, try and chill. But as soon as you come back, everything was the same. So I did that for quite a good few years. And then, I don't know, I think I finally learned that. I mean, I still like to go on holiday. I like to get away, but it's not kind of an escape route anymore. Well, um, a lot of people find that experience true of holidays full, full stop. But for you, obviously, you can understand that that craving of escapism. Do you think you and Holly will go to Sierra Leone together at some point? Mm -hmm. I don't know. We had a little bit of a conversation the other week when I started the podcasts. Holly hasn't listened to them. Something was mentioned and I I must have said, have have you listened? She said, "I I don't want to. She said, I don't think I want to know how my dad was killed and not knowing how he was killed, but obviously everything else that went along with it. She went, I don't, I don't want to know. Well, Maybe, you know, she might change her mind. Um, I, I don't know, but that's, that's, up, that's, that's entirely up to her. That's her choice. I, and I think people like you and I at the age that we're at are less likely to change our mind about many things going forward, but she has plenty of time to change her mind several times on many, many things. And, it could be something that comes to her later in life. Us bringing this up might just be enough for her at this point and revisit it in her own time ahead. Since the litigation, which we talked about in the last episode, apart from holidays, what have the last 15 years been like? I mean, what have you... Tell people what you do for a living. Have you... Any quality of personal life, just just fill us in. I've moved house quite a lot. I think that's the unsettling in me. And I could never settle. I didn't know where I wanted to be. I'd buy a lovely house. I'd do it up. I'd, I'd spend a lot of money on a house, sell it, lose a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> I, was ne- I was never content. I, w- I was never settled. And I think that's part of my grieving process i was just never i was never happy it didn't matter what i had nice car nice house holidays i just didn't it's not that i didn't appreciate it i just didn't i didn't care and i always used to say that i would rather live in a shed or a cardboard box and have michael back than have everything that i had so for quite a while, I kind of bought a house. I sold. I bought a house. I saw. Um, yeah, I've moved, I've moved houses quite not not very far in distance. I think maybe in the last few years, I've kind of become more settled. I didn't work for a long time, obviously raising Holly, and I think after everything had ended with the MOD, etc., it took me quite a good few years to kind of live live a normal life, like, as much as I could. And then I went back to work, I don't know, about 10 years ago. Maybe it's a bit longer. Just part-time. I just got a little cleaning job and then took a few years out. And then it was when COVID hit. I went to work in a COVID test centre and best time of my life. One of the best times of my life. Because? 
I just, I love the job. I love the people. It, I mean, you're talking 13 hour shifts at a COVID test centre. It was manic, busy, on your feet all day. But I was doing right. something worthwhile and I knew I could do it. And I, and I was really good at the job, which was a bore. And I loved, I loved the job. So although COVID did a lot of damage to a lot of people and a lot of people lost lives and I kind of feel a bit awkward in saying that it, it did me a favour. I loved I loved the job. It was it was the best job ever. I think it did quite a lot of people and I mean the previous point there about moving houses underlines what we talked about in the litigation episode. And essentially there's the proof that you can't chase materialism as compensation for grief. Mm-hmm. The COVID point is I mean, it was a terrible time, and as time goes on and people unpick it, we're not really sure which truth was watertight. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that in those first weeks, almost up to the Barnard Castle moment where Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's special advisor, I think, supposedly... He's looking for an eye test somewhere in a remote part of County Durham and breaks the rules. A very intelligent guy, but indicative of some stuff that is fact now that we know, which is that there was an element in government who felt that they were above the rules. But we should not lose sight of the fact that up to that moment, it brought people together, community spirit, Social distancing, but checking in on a neighbour, exercising, having time to talk to people. The voodoo of working from home, which was often looked at as they're on a day's sky, becomes the norm and prevails still in society. You could open your front door. You could go for your one hour's exercise and where you might perhaps wander past a busy dual carriageway there was nothing but just the wind in the air and people gardened and people exercised and people raised money and people helped and i tell you it was an unprecedented moment to be cherished for the positive reasons but to be despised for all of the negativity hurt and illness that it obviously brought so i'm guessing what you're saying there is it gave you a purpose it gave you it gave you a sense of community that maybe at one point the army did but that memory's trashed you'd echo what i'm saying there i think wouldn't you yeah yeah because it did give me a purpose and i think for a long time because i didn't work because of everything was going on and i was raising holly and i hated the fact that i got a military pension a widow's pension i hated it and when people used to ask us what I did for a living, I, I I would dread that question. You know, you'd go to a hairdresser's somewhere new and they'd say, oh, how are you? What are you doing today? You know, have you been to work? It's always the, the general conversation that everybody talks about. And I hated the fact because I used to say, oh, well, I, I, don't, I don't work. It got to the point where I just used to lie. <laughs> I used to say that I worked for the MOD. 
a few times. I mean, I was getting my military pension from them. Do you know what I mean? But I think when I when I went back to work, and especially the COVID test centre, I kind of got my confidence back, as in work related, that I wasn't a nobody, that I was good at something, and I knew I could do it, and I did the job damn well. And I think it was it was to prove to myself, right? Okay, I can do this. So, and we all got finished from the COVID test centre, which was two years ago. I went and got another job straight away. Uh, doing? It was actually just in a job centre. It was still COVID related because it was cleaning the chairs when somebody left after their appointment. It was the cushiest job I'd ever had, but it was still a job, you know, and I thought, right, okay. And then I went on to my next job was for HMRC, and that was Corporation Tax Debt Management. Oh. And and, <laughs> and and that was the biggest thing for me because I passed all the assessments, I passed the video link interviews, um, and I got the job, and I was so proud because I thought, right, I'm not a nobody. I'm not stupid. I, I knew I wasn't stupid, but... I didn't have any any experience, obviously, because I hadn't worked for so long. The amount of jobs that I put in for just before the COVID test centre was unbelievable. It was just before COVID that I started thinking, right, I'm going to go back to work. I just got knocked back, knocked back, knocked back. So then, obviously, when I landed the job with HMRC, I thought, right, okay. I didn't stay very long, six, seven months. I, I, I didn't like the job. But that proved to me, right, okay, I can do it. And if I can do that, what else can I do? So kind of, yeah. Thank you for not writing to me in that capacity. I think the comments about, well, let's say small talk, but going to the hairdressers, etc. I really cannot stress this enough, but anybody that's had any form of depression, you know, the, the words, how are you, are really, really tough. It's difficult to answer. And it's a question that's thrown away so many times every day in every country. And it really is an elaborate way of saying hi. And in my personal experience, if someone asks you, how are you? How are you doing today? They're not really hanging around for the answer. No. And if you give them the full answer, it's too much for them. They can't deal with it. They don't know what to say. And they're not really interested. So I think people will relate to that awkwardness there. Quality of personal life. How do you make yourself happy other than going on holidays and, and Holly? What brings you joy? Uh, peace and quiet. Uh, <laughs> I like, I like my own company. I know a lot of people think, oh, I do. I like my own company and I'm, I'm happy to be on my own, but I like socialising with friends. We often meet up for food, drinks, you know, nights out, weekends away. We go to lodges, holidays, but I'm more of a quiet life. Like I'm not into going out every weekend to the pubs and clubs. And I've been there and done that a long time ago. And it's just not for me. I kind of like to do my own thing. And what about your relationship with, let's just say, the military now? Two things occur to me. We've talked about 
other fallen servicemen, and you've alluded to some of their families' fights for justice. And also, the second thing is that it occurs to me that you must receive correspondence from time to time from people like the Ministry of Defence, whether it be, well, through a third party about, say, a pension update or perhaps an invitation to a Remembrance Day service. Just fill us in on those things. Would you, at one time, your army life would have been 100% bar your family and friends you'd left behind in the northeast how many of those people are still in your life now and what do you feel when you get like a an mod related letter or other modern form of communication arrive in the morning um, about the mod i've got nothing to say about them i just i don't like them i don't like what they did to me i don't like how they treat me have they have they been there for me since I moved away? No. Nope. So on that part, I think there's still a bit of anger or hatred, whatever. Yeah, I get obviously yearly dates from my pension. It's a Quinity paymaster through the MOD, but I'm used to it. It's you know it's just one of them things. Events. I don't go to any remembrance events at all. I choose not to. I've probably, I think I've been to one, one local parade in 21 years. But I did go to the Royal British Legion. I, I, I kind of contacted them. They don't, they don't necessarily contact the families. I think you've got to contact them. So I did hound them a little bit and asked if me and Holly could go. It was about eight, nine years ago. We went to the, the Royal Albert Hall, the Festival of Remembrance, and it was, we did the, walk down the stairs live on tv for the families of the fallen let's just say um they knew who i was they kind of kept the distance i could see them with all the other families afghan iraq northern ireland me no they kind of kept the distance we did rehearsals etc obviously it was live on tv and then after this after it went live on TV on the Saturday night, we went back to the hotel to the bar and this top guy from RBL kind of bumped into us when I was going to the bar and kind of made like a snide remark about me suing the MOD. And I was like... Wow. And I just said, you, d you don't know. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know all the ins and outs. I sued them for a reason, for negligence. I said it wasn't about the money at all. And I said, and I proved right that they were wrong. And he was like, no, 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 no. And I went, well, I've noticed since I got here, because we, me and Holly arrived on the Thursday, I just got that feeling that I wasn't, I wasn't wanted there. Or they were very cautious of me. Obviously, I kept it all together and, you know, I, I did enjoy it. And I, I, I enjoyed it for Holly. It was an experience for her. But when I got home on the Sunday, a good friend, Anne-Marie, at the time, she came round on the Monday morning, like, how did it go? And I just, I broke down. I, I, I literally burst into tears and I was sobbing. And I just said it was horrible. They made me feel really uncomfortable because they'd obviously looked into me. 
before I went down and they knew and they were judging me obviously of what had happened it kind of makes me think I don't want anything to do with anything like that Truth of Lies And today's military community um, made up of people you would have known from the past and complete strangers who've been in conflict etc do you is that part of your life or not do, is that yeah it is i mean facebook i've still got all my army friends who i joined with on facebook we keep that's how we keep in touch because they live all over the world canada there's a few in canada obviously different places um wales you know england the northern ireland so that's how we kind of keep in touch and obviously there's a few of Michael's friends I keep in touch with on Facebook and I have a lot of army widows, well not a lot, I have army widows on um, Facebook and obviously some mams who have lost sons and daughters in Iraq and Afghan, I have them on and, Facebook. And do you find in that community that there are common threads, shared experiences? Yeah, some kind of, sometimes it's quite hard to see on Facebook when you see the memories, you know, the anniversary, the birthdays and the post. I, 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 kind, of, I, got, I kind of got to a point where I thought, I, I, I can't take this, it's too much, you know, I don't, I, I don't need. But is that me being selfish because they've lost someone and especially obviously the mums who've lost sons and daughters, I can't imagine how... I can't imagine what they're going through. Do you know what I mean? Hell. Hell every day for them. So, but we, yeah, we kind of keep in touch through Facebook and, and that and that's about it. Not long left to go now, but we must uh, almost leave the final word to Holly. What can you tell us about her? Where is her life heading? What are the standout moments? What she achieved already? She's very headstrong. More so than me. She's feisty. She's done. She's done okay for herself. Good singer when she was younger. She she was obviously in um, dance competitions. Good dancer. Won trophies. Did competitions. Did okay at school. She wasn't really. Has, I wasn't keen on school. I I'm not really sure who is. But she excelled it with her English and PE and she hated maths. And obviously she left school. Went to college for three years did health and social, and now she's working. She's She goes abroad. She has a nice boyfriend, you know, who, he comes from a nice family. And she's, yeah, she's doing okay. She's she's a typical 21-year-old. If you Google, one thing that will come up is something I didn't know about. I wonder if it's worth just talking for a moment about Scotty's Little Soldiers. Oh, yeah, uh-huh, mm-hmm, Scotty's, yeah. So that comes up. Just explain what that is to people that don't know and also underline how you've benefited or helped this charity. So Scotty's Little Soldiers is a charity for children of the fallen in the forces. And Nikki Scott is the founder and her husband was killed in Afghan. And she set up this charity for the whole purpose of, for the children. 
and they have trips away they have lodges all over the uk where you can go and stay for a week free all paid for by scotties they have huge amazing out of this world christmas parties the children are invited and obviously the mums and or dads go and stay over in a hotel and they have them at different locations they have a scotties ball every year where they raise a lot of money for charity, obviously for the charity. And they do lots of fundraising, loads of fundraising. And obviously Holly was part of it. She still is part of it, but obviously she's in the adult stage now. You know, before they they, they would get Easter eggs at Easter, they, all, they always get a gift for the birthday. Every remembrance for every child, even still Holly, will receive a gift card just before the remembrance, just before the anniversary. You. You said something there, I think, and, and paused when you were talking about the dads. And obviously, there's always a perception until recent times that if we go to war or serve overseas, it will be the men that fall. But when you said that, it did occur to me, actually, and it is quite clear through all of this that the relationship between the Ministry of Defence and mental health and responsibility is somewhat, well, wayward. But there must, of course, and you must have met them or had contact on Facebook, You, there must be dads out there that are bringing up children because mm -hmm. their wives have fallen too. And it's not something that we ever really talk about. And it's the same scenario, but it's a different scenario, clearly. Mm-hmm. I don't know if women in your position have a better coping mechanism. I really don't know. But have you met some some guys like that? I haven't met them, but I know there is a few on Scotties who are obviously single parents um, raising their, their children through they've, they've lost a mum. Yeah. And the other thing that always occurs to me in situations like this is that the work of a charity, often born out of a personal tragedy, is visibly greater than the employer's stance to those people who have lost. And I'm sure if we ask the Ministry of Defence for comment, which I don't have to do, this is our podcast. We can, you know, within reason, as long as it's fair, say what we want. I'm sure they would say we are making great strides to understand the mental health implications for our service men and women and their families. But it often seems the case that it's a charity that someone has felt perhaps forced to set up or they are doing it as a memory that provides the greatest support and the most constant support. So you talked about Holly there and Easter eggs and how she's moved on through the years. So Scotty's Little Soldiers are still in your life. They were the only like um help. We never got any help from the MOD. So yeah, that was the only that was the only help we ever had. Obviously being with other people in the same situation, that was the only ever help we had. Well, in those earlier episodes, we also talked about the role of the the equivalent of the family liaison officer that the police provide to families and the army has their own equivalent. But 
in a previous episode, we talked about the role of the family liaison officer, which is a police position to help people that are uh, particularly with road traffic accidents, but they need support in the immediate aftermath. And obviously you explained the role in terms of the army. And we made the point that it is all very well in the days and weeks that follow. But here we are, two decades on, and if it weren't for Scotty's little heroes, there might be nothing in place. When I left Wheaton Camp in the April of 2002, didn't hear anything. Michael's company officer wrote me a letter the following year on the anniversary, just saying, you know, thinking of you and blah de blah and but I never had any other contact from apart from obviously the MOD with the solicitors, etc. And then I think it was about two years after I'd moved back up here, I got a phone call from a family's officer in South Shields. And he said, oh, just, he said his name. I can't, I can't even remember his name. I'm such and such, the family's officer, obviously. I'm going to be your local, new local family's officer. I'm taking over from the Wheaton. And I laughed and I went, excuse me. I said, I moved April 2002. And he was like, I'm sorry. I said, I moved 2002, April, and I haven't had anybody since. I've had no help. I've had nobody being in contact with me. I've had nothing, no support, nothing. And he went, I'm going to end this call and I'm going to do some phone calls because I think, I think I've got the wrong end of the stick. I'm confused. And then he did ring us back a few days later and full of apologies. Yeah, that's one of those moments, though. I mean, never mind the long period of time in which you haven't heard from anybody. But in situations like this, when somebody picks up the phone to you, they really need to have their facts right and ready before they begin the conversation. It's just simple things like knowing Holly's name or, you know, but also, of course, where you're living. And, and that lack of care just alienates you even more, really, doesn't it? It just, you, you know, what can a person that gets it wrong from the outset like that possibly do to help you after all of these years? Unless you're a very, very kind, forgiving person, you're probably not really going to be looking at them for help, I would think. I've, se I've seen other families who have had support from the regiments. And I think that's what used to upset me as well, because me and Holly were just kind of left. Nobody bothered with us. Well, I'm still actually waiting for a letter of an apology <laughs> from the MOD, and I'll I'll wait with bated breath for that. Why don't you write to your MP asking <laughs> if they might like to, on the 21st anniversary of Michael's death, if they might like to, Apologise. It puts them in a very difficult situation, potential media backlash, etc. But then again, it's a futile exercise because if you have to ask somebody to do something like that, you do see it time and time again, whether it be Hillsborough, whether it be Windrush coming into the UK, etc., etc. People 
are often on the news, quite often standing on courtroom steps. And like you, compensation's not anywhere near their priorities. They just want someone to be accountable. Is there anything else after over two decades that we've missed that you need to share, that you need to say before we're done? No. Well, we've been talking about doing this for, in some form, was it 2015? Yeah. <laughs> 2015. What has this series done to you? It did give me anxiety a little bit. I think talking about certain things, not anxiety, just a bit. Panicky. I think it all kind of brought it ahead. Well, I haven't really had any bad dreams. I'm not sure it's brought closure, but for me, at least I know that I've let other people know exactly what happened. You know, people people might say, oh, she lost her husband in the army. Oh, that's really sad. But they never really knew the ins and outs of everything that went on. And I've done it for me. It, for me, for me personally, so, yeah. So my final two questions were, what has this series done to you? Followed by, I'm sure you'll agree, the brilliant, what has this series done for you? <laughs> but I think you touch on that and the truth sets you free. Do you feel that you've accomplished something? Do you feel proud of what we've done? Do you feel a burden removed? Not that the telling of the story, despite any anxiety it might have given you, has been full of pressure, but do you feel it's been important and worthwhile? Very, very important. I've told the truth. and. And I've told exactly what happened and how it was. And that's the truth. And obviously, you know, I don't know. They might, if some if somebody's really listening to this or in months to come or years to come, there could be somebody else who could be in a situation like I was and they don't know what to do. And I'm a great believer in if you have that good feeling that something's not right, and I think especially with the MOD, then take them on. Well, from my personal point of view, notwithstanding the discomfort that we've been discussing, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've said to Julie in many private messages, I don't care if thousands or millions listen if we can bring this story to one new person who passes it on to one other new person. And this story outlives us because we will sit there in cyberspace on an app, on a podcast platform beyond our time, then that has merit. So from both of us, thank you very much for listening to Truth of Lies. And thank you also very much for listening to Truth. 
To find out more, please visit secretsofaghostwriter.com. Truth of Lies is a horny media and publishing production.